Section 9 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine H. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 9. Isabella of Castile. Part 5. Immediately upon her arrival, she showed the humanity and mildness of her character by requesting the cessation of hostile operations, and caused terms of capitulation to be offered the inhabitants of Malaga. They would gladly have accepted these, but for the fierce chieftain El Zegri, who returned only a defiant answer. The siege was, therefore, prosecuted with redoubled vigor, an event occurred shortly after the queen's arrival, which occasioned great alarm for her safety. A wild moor named Agarby allowed himself to be taken prisoner, and, promising to reveal important information to the Spanish sovereigns, was conducted to the royal tent. The king being asleep, the queen refused to confer with the prisoner till he should awaken and be present at the audience. The moor was, therefore, led to an adjoining pavilion, where the Marchioness of Moya and Don Alvaro were playing a game of chess. Their magnificent apparel and distinguished bearing deceived Agarby, who, thinking himself in the presence of royalty, suddenly drew forth a dagger from the folds of his Moorish mantle and plunged it into the side of the unsuspecting Don Alvaro, then turned quick as lightning upon the Marchioness, who escaped injury by the weapon becoming entangled in the heavy embroidery of her robes in its descent. The attendants fell upon the assassin, dispatching him with numberless blows. The noise of the affray soon spread the alarm, and in revenge for the daring attempt, his body was thrown from an engine into the besieged city. Spanish historians denominate him a fanatic. His own countrymen might have immortalized him as a hero who, in the face of certain death, made one last effort to arrest the departing glory of the kings of Granada by sending into the captivity of death the crowned instigators of their downfall. The vigilance of sentinels was redoubled, and an additional guard placed upon the royal quarters. Though Isabella was disturbed and alarmed at her danger, she still enforced her wishes to spare the destruction of Malaga and its inhabitants. Capitulation was again offered, but rejected with disdain, notwithstanding the famine which had reduced the besieged to the necessity of eating the flesh of horses, cats, dogs, and boiled leaves. To this distress a pestilence was added, arising from the use of such unwholesome food. Reduced to uttermost extremity, their numbers rapidly diminishing, and their places of defense giving way under the increasing fire and battering engines of the Spaniards, El Zegre at length sent an embassy to Ferdinand, accepting the offered terms, to which the king replied that it was too late, as they must now abide by such terms as their conquerors chose to offer. After remonstrances, threats, and defiance on the part of the Moorish general, he was at length obliged to surrender Malaga unconditionally, 
having bravely maintained its defense for three months. Ferdinand and Isabella entered the city at the head of a triumphant procession, and went in state to the Cathedral of St. Mary, where Mass was performed, and thanks given to the God of Armies for enabling them to establish the Catholic faith in the land of the infidels. The Te Deum was solemnly chanted, followed by all the usual demonstrations of victory. In the meantime, the inhabitants of Malaga awaited the decision of their fate with the additional terror of suspense. The dungeons were opened, and the Christian captives, who had been chained there for years, were led before Isabella in the presence of the assembled multitude. Sons, brothers, husbands, long mourned as dead, were recognized among the dejected, cadaverous beings, with cries of joy at the reunion and tears at the sight of their suffering. Isabella wept with them, had them carefully provided for, and enabled them to return to their families. Strange inconsistency that could release captives in a foreign land with tears, while, in her own dominions, thousands innocently suffered a more horrible captivity in the dungeons of the Inquisition. And strange infatuation that should lead her, immediately after the release of Spanish prisoners, for whom her tears had flowed, to enslave a host of the most beautiful Moorish maidens, for herself and friends, tearing them from homes and loved ones no less dear, because the crescent was an emblem of their faith, though this was sufficient to make them unfeeling in the eyes of the Spaniards. The terrified inhabitants were ordered to appear in the spacious courtyard of the Alcazaba, to hear their doom pronounced. Wasted by famine, and exhausted with fearful watching, they clung in despairing silence to one another, pale and trembling. They were anxious as to their impending fate, yet hoping for the generous treatment shown towards other conquered cities. Here and there a sullen moor stood apart, with folded arms and rebellious spirit, haughtily awaiting the sentence he knew full well would be no light one from the exasperated conquerors. Breathlessly the multitude listened till the dreaded decree of hopeless slavery was passed upon them, then sent up a long mournful cry that might have touched a heart of stone. O oh, Malaga, renowned and beautiful, what shall become of thy old men and thy matrons, thy sons and thy maidens, when they shall feel the galling yoke of bondage, cried they, in tones of agonized grief. Daughters clung to mothers, children in vain supplicated the protection of their fathers, the family ties were broken. Some were destined to the burning coasts of Africa, some were distributed in the beautiful plains of Italy, while the noblest and fairest were selected to embellish the palaces of Spain, in subjection to those whom they hated as infidels as well as oppressors. Ferdinand would have put them all to the sword, but for the remonstrances of his more humane consort, though their policy had always been marked by a magnanimity that won them a worldwide fame in those days of savage warfare. The rapacious Ferdinand, fearing that the inhabitants would conceal their wealth, secured it by offering freedom to them at a ransom so enormous that, despite all the gold, 
precious stones and merchandise the duped victims could lay at his feet, it availed them nothing. These traits, that gradually became more prominent in his character, repulsed the upright purity and tenderness of Isabella's more refined, exalted nature, and chilled the love that had at first united their interests and aims. But whatever Isabella's disappointment was upon a clearer perception of the soul that years made more transparent to her insight, she never compromised the dignity of either by revealing it to those who surrounded them. The year succeeding the capture of Malaga was more remarkable for its reverses than successes. After a short campaign, Ferdinand withdrew his forces. Isabella's residence during the ensuing winter was at Valladolid and Saragossa, where she was entirely engrossed in domestic affairs and the education of her children. The Princess Isabella was her constant companion and confidant, relieving her mother's sorrows by her gentle, sweet sympathy. Her eldest and promising son, Don Juan, often diverted her from oppressive troubles. But all her motherly anxieties were awakened for her second daughter, Joanna, who, having always been subject to fits, was threatened with idiocy or insanity. The infant Catherine, destined to a sad fate, and known as Catherine of Aragon, was at this time affianced to Prince Arthur, son of Henry the Seventh of England, an event which sealed a long unbroken peace between the two nations. The brilliant campaign of 1489 decided the fate of Granada. An army was raised of 15,000 horse and 80,000 foot, embracing the most distinguished leaders and hardy knights of Spain, together with troops furnished by allies. Ferdinand led his legions once more over the mountainous barriers, determined to summon all their strength for a final victory that should terminate this long, disastrous war. The siege of Bassa was determined upon, as it was the capital of El Zegel's dominions and the most important post to be obtained. A long and fierce resistance, however, dampened the ardor of the Spaniards, and after suffering several reverses in skirmishes and attacks upon the town, and dreading the severity of the fast approaching winter, they were so entirely disheartened as to unitedly desire the king to return to Castile and await the following spring for the furtherance of designs which would detain and expose them to certain death by the hardships of the cold season and the cutting off of supplies by the breaking up of the roads over the mountains. Even the most heroic leaders advised Ferdinand to abandon the siege, and scarcely one in the whole army opposed it but the sagacious commander of Leon. Uncertain what course to take, and unwilling to disband his army without a single conquest, Ferdinand sent his embassy to Isabella, who resided at Hyene, a place nearest the scene of action and most convenient for communication. Her reply, full of hope, courage and energy, promising the faithful discharge of her engagement to furnish supplies to the army without intermission, at whatever cost or labor, reassured the dispirited army. With fresh vigor they made preparations for the approaching winter, and the astounded moors of Bassa suddenly beheld a city of houses and streets rise, as if by magic, where only light tents had sheltered the besiegers. 
walls of mud, thatched with timber, constituted the houses of the nobility. Palisades joined at the top, and intertwined with boughs, protected the common soldiers. Shortly after the completion of these huts, a severe storm swept them all to the earth. Torrents rolled down from the mountains, swelling the streams to an impassable depth and rapidity. The mountain roads were blocked up by fallen rocks and trees, and deep fissures were cut by the descending floods. Alarm was depicted on every continent now that supplies and intercourse with their own country were completely cut off. Two or three days of painful suspense ensued when a messenger arrived from Isabella exhorting them to hold their position, for the roads should be quickly repaired. With incredible alacrity and skillful management, she succeeded in the reconstruction of the roads. Her workmen made new ones, bridged the swollen rivers, and established a line of fourteen thousand mules, which constantly conveyed supplies of every description to the army. The immense expense incurred she defrayed by pawning the crown jewels, plate, and personal ornaments, by large sums borrowed of wealthy individuals who, for their reimbursement, trusted to the word of the queen, a sufficient guarantee for any risk, so faithful was she in performing her promises, and, by the treasures of the convents and monasteries, thrown open to her. Thus, to the indefatigable efforts of this high-spirited, admirable woman, who wonderfully united feminine qualities with masculine wisdom, energy, and skill, was owing the brilliant and decisive conquests that succeeded. Bassa was still defended with determined valor and strength, drawn from the dependence of the fate of Granada upon the loss or retention of this royal stronghold. The Spaniards again lost patience with the prolonged defense, looked to the queen for new inspiration, and believing her presence would hasten the termination of the siege, entreated her to join them. Accompanied by the Princess Isabella, the Marchioness of Moya, and other ladies of her court, she arrived at the camp in November, the sixth month of the siege. When the Moors beheld her gay cavalcade streaming from among the mountains, knowing what a talisman of success lay in her presence, they beat their breasts in dismay and despair, exclaiming, Now is the fate of Bassa decided. From the moment of her appearance, says the historian, a change came over the scene. No more of the cruel skirmishes which before had occurred every day. No report of artillery or clashing of arms or any of the rude sounds of war were to be heard, but all seemed disposed to reconciliation and peace. Bassa almost immediately surrendered, and the triumphant Christians entered the city amid the firing of artillery, waving of banners, and the ringing of bells, hateful sights and sounds to the vanquished. The Alcaide, who had bravely sustained the defense, was loaded with civilities and presents. Overcome by the same kindness and sweet sympathy which gave Isabella such power over her own subjects, he knelt before her in admiration and offered his services in her cause thenceforth. She replied graciously and created him one of her knights. The monarch El Zagel, then in a neighboring fortress, knowing how fruitless resistance would be, 
resigned himself to a fate he could no longer avert. What Allah wills he brings to pass in his own way. Had he not decreed the fall of Granada, this good sword might have saved it. But his will be done, exclaimed the fallen king, with the solemn gravity and unchanging features characteristic of the Moors. Ferdinand appointed him king of Andres, subject to the crown of Castile. This shadow of royalty could not divert him from his melancholy downfall. In a short time he resigned the despised crown, and left the scene that continually reminded him of the departed glory of Granada. He took refuge among the Africans, who seized upon the riches he carried with him, and left him to end his days in extreme poverty and obscurity. Boabdil was now called upon to yield up his capital and acknowledge the supreme sovereignty of Castile and Aragon. The inhabitants of Granada refused the demand, and sent a message of defiance to the conquerors. Unwilling to open another siege so late in the season, they returned to the city of Seville to recruit, perfectly at ease in the knowledge that Granada was theirs except in name. In the following spring, the nuptials of the Princess Isabella and young Alfonso of Portugal were celebrated in a succession of balls, fetes, and tournaments, which were gladly welcomed after the toils and hardships of war. But the queen mingled in these rejoicings with a heavy heart, dreading separation from a daughter who had enlisted her strongest affections, and who regarded her own departure with equal and foreboding sadness. Columbus again appeared at court in the interval of peace, to present his claims. He was referred to the Council of Salamanca, which, after a three years' consideration of the matter, had decided that the scheme proposed was vain and impossible, that it did not become such great princes to engage in an enterprise of the kind on such weak grounds as had been advanced. This was the decision of Spain's most learned and scientific men. Yet there was a minority in the council of more enlightened views who would fain have encouraged the great discoverer, and so far prevailed on the sovereigns as to induce them to hold out promises of future and more explicit attention to the subject when the war of Granada had ceased. In April 1491, the king assembled an army of 50,000 to strike a final blow that would set his seal upon the entire kingdom of Granada. Accompanied by Don Juan, now created a knight, and the commanders who had gained numberless honors during the long wars, the unfailing Marquis of Cadiz, the valiant Count Cabra, Don Alonso de Aguilar, and his brother Gonzalvo de Cordova, of brilliant renown in the after-Italian campaigns. With such supporters, King Ferdinand once more encamped upon the banks of the Senil, facing the royal city of the Moslems, the last of all the strongholds of the kingdom that remained free and independent. The Vega stretched away from its frowning battlements, covered with a wild entangled growth of vines, groves, and gardens, whose beauty had been desolated in the long struggle, but had sprung up again in untrained luxuriance, in a soil enriched with the blood poured freely upon it. The river had gradually withdrawn from its artificial channels, rolling through the plain as musically as if a crimson tide never mingled with the pure waters, 
ever fed by the rills which like ribbons of silver unwound from the hills the grand solid mountains rising beyond alone remained unshaken and unchanged a chain of unavailing bulwarks towards which the eyes of every moslem had often turned watching in dread and hatred the coming of the myriads yearly poured forth from those rugged defiles this last defiant approach to the very walls of their beloved and last remaining city filled the moorish knights with uncontrollable vengeance and indignation thousands of the bravest and choicest of moslem chivalry were shut within its walls determined to sacrifice their heart's blood before they would yield their royal palaces or see christian monarchs seated upon their throne undaunted by the encircling foe and caring less for the horrors of a famine than submission to a foreign yoke they daily sent forth the best warriors to challenge the spanish knights to combat upon the vega which became the strange scene of innumerable single-handed battles and daring exploits that seemed more the picturings of romance than the terrible reality of war prompted on one side by bigotry and on the other by a desperate defence of home liberty and kingdom the spanish army met with a disaster which proved in the end the speedier termination of the siege isabella who was present in the camp occupied a magnificent pavilion belonging to the marquis of cadiz which with his usual gallantry he had resigned to her use one night when all were wrapped in secure slumber the cry of fire proceeding from the royal quarters roused the whole camp to arms supposing the enemy were upon them the flames which had caught in the hangings of the queen's tent from a carelessly placed taper spread with rapidity and were not extinguished till after the loss of a large quantity of plate jewels and brocade and the costly decorations of the pavilions occupied by the nobility isabella herself narrowly escaped injury as a memorial of her gratitude to god for the preservation and in token of her determination never to abandon the vega till granada had surrendered she caused a city of substantial houses to be erected in the place where the encampment stood immediately the soldiers became artisans and instead of the shock the shout the groan of war the din of industry went up to the ears of the amazed moors who beheld in the rising city a token of inflexible determination that it was useless and fatal to combat in less than three months la santa fe was completed and was long after the boast of the spaniards for its freedom from the pollution of heresy boabdil would have yielded at once but dared not oppose the undiminished courage of the inhabitants who were still resolved to die in defence of their last possessions although fully aware of the impossibility of retaining their position eventually secret negotiations were carried on however with the king's vizier sometimes within the sacred precincts of the alhambra and sometimes at midnight in the little village of churiana which ended in boabdil's betrayal of granada into the hands of the christians end of section nine